America's reactions to the COVID-19 crisis uh, are ripping the country apart. It's been highly politicized. The left wants to keep the country shut down with lockdowns and the the right so-called wants to open things up so that people can get back to work and their lives. Uh, underlying this all, though, is a, is a real debate about what the nature of this virus is, uh, how lethal it is, how widespread, how long-lasting, um, who it affects, uh, whether the effects on people's lives are, are, you know, can be measured differently, whether, example, old people, lives should be measured differently from young people. We do know that this barely affects school-age children. It's just like the numbers, even in New York, are like 0.001%. Uh, it's, it's hard to think of a time when the debate about statistics, facts, and science has been so colored by people's perceptions. Um, I know mine are, but I do think that we have science on our side when we think it's time to open the country up. Uh, I wanted to talk with somebody who is uh, less politically biased by this, and in this show I'm talking with Jim Agresti, who founded a great organization called Just Facts, which gets into the empiricals in policy debates. And I hope you'll um, listen to us talk about this. And I hope you'll go to his website and learn more and, and to my website and uh, um, look forward to what, learning what you think. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome. I'm Bill Walton, and I'm here today to talk about uh, COVID-19 with my good friend Jim Agresti. Jim, who runs Just Facts, is one of the most balanced, smart people I know about taking data and working with it to... Uh, uh, reach conclusions uh, for policy people, for hedge funds, and for all sorts of uh, uh, people who care about what's true or isn't true. Uh, if you're like me, uh, you're pretty confused right now. I think about Led Zeppelin, maybe dazed and confused. And, you know, in preparation for the show, I've been reading everything I could put my hands on, and I've got titles like An Egregious Statistical Horror Story, The Data's In, Stop the Panic, End the Total Isolation, uh, lockdown suicide data reveal predictable strategy. Well, to sort all this out, I wanted to go back to Jim and his Just Facts organization, who really does a lot to try to take distortions, both political, emotional, and, and whatever kind of distortions, out of the, out of the arguments to get at uh, what's true and what isn't true. Jim, welcome back. Good to talk with you again. Bill, pleasure to be back. Tell me, just, I, tell us a bit about Just Facts. It's a very interesting organization, the way you get at uh, what you think are the, uh, what, what are, what's true and what isn't true. So we are a nonprofit institute dedicated to publishing comprehensive, straightforward, and rigorously documented facts about issues that are vital to people. Uh, all too often, the press doesn't provide any of those. You know, the, the, the coverage is very narrow. It avoids important facts that are critical. And we try to fill that gap without putting in any opinion so that people can make their own decisions based upon the data, but giving them enough data to make informed decisions. Well, you've got something called standards of credibility. 
and you've got like seven or eight different uh, criteria you use. And uh, I think I do want to jump into COVID-19, and you've written a couple of very interesting papers about how anxiety from reactions to the, to the lockdown could cause more harm than, than uh, the lockdown itself. And you've also written a lot about the true nature of the virus. But before we get into that, tell me again about your, your standards of credibility. Well, one, one of them I already mentioned, it's about providing comprehensive facts. You know, MIT physicist Victor Weisskopf once said, an expert is somebody who knows more and more about less and less until finally they know everything about nothing. <laughs> and I think that statement adequately sums up what's gone on here with uh, the governmental reactions to the COVID-19 pandemic. They are focused, hyper-focused on the views of infectious disease experts, which they should be to a degree because this is an infectious disease. But they are making policy decisions that have impacts, much broader impacts than that one narrow field of epidemiology. And what we're trying to do with Just Facts is say, hey, let's look at everything here. Let's look at the impacts of across everything, not this, this one narrow field of COVID-19 because although it has killed roughly 100,000 people or about one out of every 3,000 people in America, every year in America, about one out of every 100 people die. So this is only one thirtieth of the normal death toll. And if we're doing things that increase those other uh, causes of death, we may be doing more harm than good. So you, you work with primary sources, you document things rigorously, uh you work with raw data to the extent you can, and you, you throw out discrepancies and, and try to get at uh, explaining things in clear language, which I love. Thank you. Uh, but I'd like to start out with clear language right out of the box. We, I have some confusions about what we ought to call this, whether it's a coronavirus or COVID-19. And as you've pointed out, there's a difference between the two and, and, and uh, terminology matters. It absolutely does. So COVID-19, or should I say the virus that causes COVID-19, is one of many different coronaviruses. But when the media calls this the coronavirus or the novel coronavirus, which is more accurate, but still can be misleading, they're looking at the general attributes of coronaviruses. And they're saying, well, these viruses uh, tend to mutate very rapidly Therefore, we're not sure if we can get a vaccine and if we get one, if we're gonna to have to update it every year and if the treatments that work today on it will work tomorrow. But COVID-19 is, a, uh, the virus that causes COVID-19 is unique uh, among coronaviruses in that it doesn't mutate rapidly because it has a proofreading mechanism in its genetics. And I should say this, everything I'm gonna tell you here today is not, is from, a peer-reviewed or very highly credible primary source. That particular fact I'm sharing with you came from a medical journal, and it's from uh, a geneticist uh, called Michael Farzan from uh, Scripps Howard uh, Research Center. So I'm sharing with you facts that are published and, and proven, but yet haven't been reported by the media, or even worse, been misreported, because I'm constantly seeing, hey, this is a coronavirus. It, it's very prone to mutation. So I've, I'll put a plug in at this point for your website, justfacts.com, because you've got two excellent studies that we're going to talk about today, and they're extensively 
researched uh, and, and footnoted and, and sourced. And if you want to get at what is really happening, I think Jim's given us a, a path to get there. So backing up to what you were just saying, the COVID-19, is it spreads like mad, but it spreads once, and it doesn't mutate the way a lot of other flus and viruses do. So once you've had it, uh, you may have had it for life. Yes. Um, that is, by the way, I'm speaking in terms of probability here. This is what we know at the moment based upon the latest scientific data. They'll find more, but all the early indications are this does not mutate rapidly. Now, all viruses mutate. The question is, does it mutate enough to make a difference in the vaccine you may use or the treatment you may use? And there's no evidence that it does. In fact, the evidence is exactly the opposite because of its genetic code, which they've uh, started uh, mapping, they can see this proofreading mechanism. What about its lethality? There was a lot of talk early on that three or four percent of people out of the population, population may die from this. Now what we're seeing is this thing's evolved over the last two, three, now almost four months, is that it's, it's, uh, the lethality is not what we thought it was out of the box. Absolutely correct. And by the way, even from the very beginning, there were scientists and prominent people saying this is about roughly as, as lethal as the flu for people who catch it. Now, you're much more prone to catch it than the flu because it spreads more quickly. But for those, of, those people who get it, the, the, the death rate or the fatality rate is roughly the same. The problem is that the media and the World Health Organization and a couple of other organizations have basically used a misleading method of calculating the death rate, which is taking the number of deaths and dividing it by the number of confirmed cases um, as the denominator. And thus the, the common term became known as the denominator problem. And the problem with that is that most people who catch this show no symptoms and many show very little symptoms. So what happens is they don't get tested they're not counted in the denominator. And when you artificially shrink that denominator, uh, it makes the uh, fraction or the death rate seem much higher. So we're all going back to our grade school math. Numerator is the number of deaths and the denominator is the population over which that's measured. And so mm -hmm. if you take just a look at the people who've tested for it, then that would be a percentage of that and that would be a pretty small denominator. And then you would take the people who might have antibodies in addition to having the flu itself, that's a bigger denominator. And then you get into people who haven't been tested, don't know anything, but may have had it and, and never knew it. I mean, is there, how many different denominators are there out there? I'm, that's, <laughs> that's another source of my confusion as I go through all of the, uh, all the reading. You know, Bill, what I, what I like to refer to as these misleading denominators is the naive case fatality rate. It's naive, it's, it's silly. Uh, they're comparing it to the flu a fatality rate, which is 0.15%. But if you look at the data underlying that, which by the way is, is readily available on the CDC's website, where every media outlet is getting this data on the flu rate fatality rate, and just look at the methodology, what they do is they take the number of confirmed cases and then multiply it realizing, hey, we don't measure all the confirmed cases. Mm -hmm. So the CDC gives a very explicit example and says, this is how we calculated this for the swine flu a few years back. 
we took the number of confirmed cases and we multiplied it by 40 to 140 times to figure out, to estimate the denominator. So it's not just that it's off by a few percent, it's off by an order of magnitude or two. So we're talking about the difference between 3% of a population at the extreme and 0.001% at the other extreme. And the reality probably lies closer to the 0.01 number as we look at the real denominator. What about the numerator? There's been some talk, and I don't think you've done as much work on the numerator. That's just the number of deaths. And one of the things that I've heard and believe is that there are a number of deaths that are associated with other uh, illnesses people may have that when uh, they do die, unfortunately, they end up attributing that to COVID-19 and not necessarily to the, uh, to the uh, other illness they may have. Have you done any work on that? Uh, I've done a little bit of research. I haven't published any on it just yet. But uh, suffice it to say this, we may be, in fact, overcounting the number of cases. Others argue we are over undercounting them. Mm -hmm. uh, but overall, it doesn't change the big picture. Maybe the figure's off by 25% in either direction. And let me say something about the potential for overcounting. So let's say somebody is in really bad shape. You know, they've got multiple comorbidities, they've got a bad heart problem, and they catch this thing, and they die. Um, and some would argue they died a month early, and maybe they did because they contracted COVID-19. The way the media is counting this with this ticker of deaths and, and most uh, public health uh, organizations is very misleading because, yes, it's sad anybody dies. It's every life is, is, is important. But there's a big difference between a malady that kills somebody at the age of 95 when they would have died a month later and something that kills someone at the age of 23. And again, if you dig into the CDC's website, you'll see they are very explicit. Hey, we're measuring the impacts on public health. We have to count the average years of life lost for each victim. Well, that's, a, that's an important path that you've been taking us down, which is that while all deaths matter, some deaths matter more in the sense that they take people at age 45 that would have lived another 40 years, and they take some people at age 85 that would have lived another couple of months. And in terms of the, the lives con contribution to society, those are very different numbers. So let's, let's first break down the lethality by age group who, and by uh, related uh, illnesses or unrelated illnesses. How, what do those statistics look like? So the CDC recently published some data and it's gotten very little attention. But they, they came out and said, we're estimating the um, asymptomatic rate for this disease. In other words, people who catch it and have absolutely zero symptoms at 35%. In my view, that is a very conservative estimate because we have two very concrete cases where everyone was tested to find out who had it and then determine who was asymptomatic. One was the Diamond Princess cruise ship which was a very elderly population. I think the average age on that ship was 69. And half of the people who they tested positive for this had no symptoms. Now, there may have been some follow-up testing that hasn't been published yet, where maybe they developed some symptoms later, but according to the latest data, half. Now, in a much younger, healthier population, doctors at two New York City hospitals tested for COVID-19 every woman who came in to deliver a baby. 
And, and this is absolutely astonishing. They found that among those who tested positive, 88% were asymptomatic. And then they followed them for a few more weeks and found that another 10% developed symptoms, but they don't think it was related to COVID-19. Their typical symptoms of fever after delivering a baby. So let's just, you know, take a, a, a conservative estimate. You know, four out of five had absolutely no symptoms. Right. So, so was the lockdown a bad idea or a good idea or a good idea for a while and now it's no longer a good idea? I think it varies depending upon the place. Based on what I see at the data of the data, sometimes I think a, a lockdown could be beneficial. But if you're locking down a rural area and telling all the hospitals in that area, you can't do uh, unnecessary or, or I forget what the term they're using, but medical procedures like uh, cancer screenings and, and heart exams. People die because this stuff is done late. Uh, and if there's not a density, dense population with a lot of people already have the disease, a lockdown can be very counterproductive. Also, even amongst people that, uh, you know, you are gonna save a significant amount of lives from COVID-19 because of the lockdowns, there's a lot of unintended consequences. And psychiatrists and even the UN has come out and said, hey, these lockdowns are causing tremendous stress on people. They're socially isolating them. As we get into this, before we get into this, let's talk about this notion of person years of life uh, that you use to talk about the, the, the social cost of each, each form of dying, whether it's COVID-19 or an accident or a heart attack or something like that. What, could you amplify? It's a pretty interesting, uh, pretty interesting way to think about this. Okay. So, for example, the average age of death for an accident is about 53 years old. The average age of death for a COVID-19 uh, fatality is about 77 years old. And again, this doesn't mean the 54-year-old is more important than the 77-year-old, but we have to realize something. Humans cannot prevent death. We can only delay it. Mm. So the question is, how much effort are we going to put in and at what cost and how many deaths are going to occur to save a life when we should be looking instead of how many years of life we're saving? That is the, what the CDC said is, is a primary measure of our public health efforts. So do you get any pushback from that? I mean, do people say, how dare you say that this person's life is worth more than the other ones, uh, some, an older person's because, uh, simply because they're younger? What, Absolutely, uh, and you know what, what's what, funny? What do what 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 people, <laughs> you, you know, you know what my mom said, who's, she said, I don't know if I'm comfortable with this concept. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty pragmatic concept. You're an engineer, of course. Yes. And I'm and, a finance and I, guy. I love so my we... mother and I love so many older people and I don't value them less than anybody else. It's just, again, we have to be practical. We're not going to live forever on this earth. So how much effort are we going to put here to, to extend somebody's life by a week, a month, a day, an hour, a year? or 50 years. You know, if I take an action um, that uh, harms somebody, even if it harms them 50 years from now, let's just say, you know, this creates an anxiety episode that starts somebody's blood pressure on an upward trend in their middle ages, and they die five years earlier because of it, because they've been isolated and they've lost their job. There's a ton of medical literature on this. This happens. Well, people say, well, that's down the road. People are dying now. 
That's as short-sighted as telling a teenager, don't worry about smoking. It's not going to kill you till 50 years from now. You got time. You have to look at Party. all the data <laughs> all the time. So with, with regard to the lockdown, it probably did what it, we wanted it to do. It, uh, it, uh, it flattened the curve, as they speak. It, it reduced hospitalizations. As a matter of fact, it not only reduced hospitalizations, but it emptied hospitals, which is another issue that we need to talk about. Uh, we've determined that the lethality is not, uh, is not what we feared at first, and so it's less, less lethal, much, much, much less lethal, so your chances of dying are lower. And we've also, though, determined that while it spreads like wildfire, as you put it, that spread can be a good thing because it, it immunizes the population and works, it, works its way through, the, through society so we can get back to normal. Is that, is that a fair summary of where we are as you see it? I'd like to add something to that. Add away. It's really difficult to tell if the lockdowns were effective and where they were effective. Uh, take New York City now and New York State, a very dense center of population in the U.S. Uh, the death rate there is, is more than 10 times higher than take Florida, for example, yeah. which is near the center, yeah. 20 times higher than Texas. They had a very strict lockdown, much stricter than these other states. And yet they've had a disaster. You had Cuomo's decision to uh, force, and our New Jersey governor, Phil Murphy's decision to force nursing homes to take COVID-19 positive patients. So, you know, this one size fits all generic lockdown, hide everybody, could be a mistake. And I think it was because what we should have done is put more effort into protecting the vulnerable and if you're young and healthy, your odds of being killed by this thing are so vanishingly small, much, much smaller than other things that occur from just walking out your door every day, getting in a car, whatever it may be, uh, taking drugs. You know? Well, uh, and those of us who have been skeptics, and I'm among them, think that this whole thing has been an incredible overreaction. And a year from now, we'll be looking back and saying, what on earth did we do? But having said that, you tend to be put on the defensive. You don't want to be too tough-minded. Every life counts, as, as uh, uh, Cuomo would tell us, although Cuomo sent all the old people back into the nursing homes, so I'm not sure that he quite valued those lives uh, as much as he uh, might purport to have done. Um, anyway, I digress. <laughs> but there is a cost uh, uh, to, the, to the lockdown, which those of us who have compassion uh, believe is real, and it's uh, the effect on people's emotions, it's effect they're not getting, going to hospitals to get treated for conditions. They're, uh, uh, you know, just generally, I mean, if you shut down the economy, the, the a shutdown economy is associated with a lot of pathologies, including death. You've done a lot of work on that, and I, I recommend your website again, the piece you wrote, Anxiety from Reactions to COVID-19, and this is the headline, will it destroy at least seven times more years of life than can be saved by lockdowns? Yes, and I, I emphasize that word at least because this uh, study was the brainchild of a uh, PhD scholar who reached out to me after we published our original research on this. His name is Dr. Andrew Glenn. And he said, hey, there's a lot of medical literature out here about the the cost of anxiety, the things associated with the lockdown, the loss of jobs, and there is, 
And he, by the way, has a PhD in operations research. And he's an award-winning uh, researcher in the field of uh, uh, computational probability. And what's unique about his discipline is it's multidisciplinary. It, it's, it looks at complex problems like we have here and says, okay, let's start quantifying all of the effects. Instead of just counting COVID-19 deaths, let, let's look at the deaths from lost jobs. Let's look at the deaths from anxiety. And our ultimate goal was to measure the deaths uh, from the lockdowns, but we weren't able to isolate that because a lot of this was wrapped up in, in other factors. So instead, what we looked at is deaths from anxiety. And we looked at the literature, we looked at scientific nationally representative surveys, several of them that have been done by like the Kaiser Family Foundation and other mental health organizations. And a lot of people are extremely stressed out about this, the lockdowns, the disease itself, media exaggerations, being shut away from family and friends, all of these things have impacts. And in a bare minimum, these impacts from anxiety are going to kill, or excuse me, destroy eventually at least seven times more years of life than the lockdowns can possibly save. Well, now, and, and, and your author, your co-author, Andrew Glenn, Dr. Andrew Glenn, I guess he, he's been at the U.S. Military Academy. Uh, you cite, you cite sur surveys or research or uh, reports that were done several years ago, many years before this, this, this virus lockdown became a public policy issue. So this is, not, this is not influenced by people's opinion about what the virus is or isn't. This is just pure data. How does anxiety, depression, mental, mental disorders affect people's uh, longevity and quality of life? Correct. And, and as we point out in the study, I'm not talking about clinical levels of anxiety. We're just talking about general anxious feelings, which many people are having about this. It doesn't have to be so bad that you see a doctor, but when you go through a high anxiety episode, even if it's not clinical, it's subclinical, they call it, it has definitive effects on you. And again, sometimes they don't manifest until years later, but that doesn't mean they're not real. So let's talk about the numbers. What, what, in terms of the person years, what's our term for this? Is it person years or, or years of life? How do, what, what's your yeah, average years of life lost per victim? I think would be okay. Let's let's put that let's put that into some categories and compare your view about the average life lost per victim uh, with the by by keeping people locked down versus not keeping people locked down and letting them go out and live their life. So. Uh, what we found amongst a, a ton of literature that we examined and laid out in, on our website is that the bare minimum is about a little over a year of life per victim for everyone who has a severe anxiety episode. And what these nationally uh, representative surveys are telling us is roughly 20% of U.S. adults are experiencing this from the COVID-19 pandemic, again, not just the pandemic itself and fear of it, but fear of the media exaggerations, the wall-to-wall -wall coverage, and also the lockdowns. Um, there's been a ton of literature written about the effects on your life, the, your life expectancy from losing a job. And this is very traumatic to people. Even if they're getting high amounts of social benefits in the interim, they have found that people will lose a couple of years of life 
as a result and, of this on average. Now, some might not lose any. Some might die, kill themselves tomorrow. But when you average it all out, that's your average years of life lost per victim. Well, you, you'd go so far, and I, I love this approach, you, you, you've quantified it and said your estimate is at least 16.8, let's call it 17% of the population of the U.S. is probably affected by this, almost 49 million people suffering major mental harm. And that's sort of the, the bedrock of your study, which is who are, you know? Who are these people? What's their pathology, and how how much how how will this affect their life? And then I think your second bedrock idea is this minimum number of life per, person years, life years, whatever that they would lose. Uh, and you're saying, uh, you know, you quantify things like 50 years or more for people, young people who commit suicide, one month or less for elderly people who might have contracted this. Um, versus two years average for middle-aged people who've got some health, uh, some heart issues. Is that? Could you expand on my my summary? Sure. So I want to correct one thing. You said uh, the word probably about seventeen percent. That's actually the absolute bare minimum. And the way we arrived at that is we looked at several different surveys, chose the lowest uh, result, and then we used the margin of error and downscale that to the lowest possible extreme of the study to, abs to establish an absolute bare minimum. And yes, and then we looked at the academic literature on uh, the uh, years of life lost from various mental health uh, stressors, and 1.3 years was the absolute bare minimum we found amongst a host of studies. Some of them are much higher. You know, we're presuming that everyone has a low-level subclinical anxiety amongst those 17%. But the fact of the matter is, some of them have very high level depression. Uh, this, you know, if you already have a mental illness, this can exacerbate it. Uh, if you were on the, you know, on the uh, brink of having a mental illness, this pushes it ahead a couple of years. Um, so, so this I, is what, an absolute bare What minimum. I'm not seeing, and this is why I wanted to have you on, and I'll probably have you back on, because I want to dig into this. I'm not seeing that reported in the media. I'm not seeing suicide spikes. I'm not seeing other sorts of, uh, um, of deaths reported. That's the, the media has been silent on that. Yeah, most of the media. I'm seeing things trickle out here and there. Uh, there was, I'm trying to remember who reported it. I think it was ABC7, so it was a local network out in California. There is a doctor there, the head of trauma at a uh, hospital. And uh, he said, we have seen more suicide attempts in the last four weeks than we have in most years. Now, wow. is that receive, receiving national coverage in the New York Times and ABC National? I haven't seen it. I track them pretty closely. And yes, I, I think their uh, reporting suffers from uh, giving you half the truth, which can amount to a total lie. So we've got just a, a couple of minutes left. Do you want to I guess you, you mentioned these lower numbers. You've got some higher numbers. You said it was at least seven times more deadly in terms of years of life, but you've reached some other conclusions about maybe 90 times more deadly or more. Could you? Sure. So uh, I should back up into this just for a quick moment and say, how are we establishing the maximum amount of life saved by lockdowns? And the way we did that is by comparing Sweden, who a lot of people know, had a, didn't have a lockdown, had some social distancing put in place, 
but kept many schools open, uh, kept its restaurants open. Uh, we show a picture of, of Stockholm, uh, just, you know, bustling with people, you know, in the middle of this thing to their neighbors that had very strict lockdowns. And the COVID-19 death rate is higher in Sweden. So what we did is we uh, compared the death rate in Sweden to the lowest death rate amongst the Scandinavian neighbors and uh, multi use that as a multiplier uh, for the number of lives saved that could possibly maybe be saved by lockdowns in the United States. So we established that as a maximum amount of lives saved by lockdowns, minimum amount cost from anxiety. We also ran calculations not using these extreme maximum and minimums, but just using the average for each of these. And it increases the ratio by a factor of 10. So we're looking at possibly, you know, if, if the averages play out, about 70 times more years of life lost from uh, anxiety than actually saved by the lockdowns. And again, this isn't right here and now, this is over time. And just like smoking or any other long-term illness, if we're taking actions today that are gonna kill people tomorrow, we need to measure those effects when we're making decisions. Who's, who's reached out to you to learn about this? This, is, this has a huge uh, impact, uh, if true, and I believe it is true the way you've, the research you've done on decisions about opening up Virginia, Maryland, you know, New York, what, whatever. Um, have any of the policy people in those states uh, come a calling? They have not. We've had a few uh, right of center media outlets come to us. Um, the Washington Examiner wrote a piece about it. Susan Berry of Breitbart, um, Tyler O'Neill of PJ Media. And we've had about a dozen uh, PhD scholars and medical professionals either write us and say, this is great research and or share it on social media. But, and, but we have not heard from you know, leading politicians who are, are um, you know, making the decisions based upon uh, what should be the best interests of all people. Uh, and these are the people that need to be reached because they, they have an, an executive order authority. I'm thinking of our state where a person who knows absolutely nothing about this is relying on a small cherry picked group of experts uh, to make decisions that are gonna impact people for decades to come. Well, it's, it's certainly- absolutely irresponsible. Yeah, it's certainly become politicized, and it's it. This is not a question of lives versus the economy. I think what your work has done has shown us this is lives versus lives, and everything you do in life, there's a risk, there's a trade-off between a good thing and a bad thing. Well, you you do this good thing to lock lock things down, and you save some lives due to uh, COVID nineteen, but on the other hand, you're destroying seven times, ninety times more lives. Uh, because of because of the lockdown, this is something that needs to be more widely reported. And uh, I hope everybody listening and viewing the show will will send it on to your friends so we can begin spreading the word that Jim is uh, that Jim has been informing us about that uh, this COVID nineteen is something we need to put in perspective and move on from these lockdowns. Uh, Jim, final thought. I thank you for having me on and I echo your sentiments. Please share this widely and uh, get it over to influential people who make decisions. Okay, well, we'll that's, uh, that's, on, that's on my to-do list. I hope it's on your to-do list. Thanks, Jim. I'm sure we'll have be back talking uh, uh, sometime in a not too distant future. Uh, thanks for joining for today's show. 
You can learn more about Jim's work on his, on his website, which is justfacts.com. And also we're rolling out a new The Bill Walton Show website, uh, which has a section called Interesting People. And Jim is a very interesting person. And we'll have a page for Jim and it'll refer to his work uh, so you can get to it both at his site and at our site. And also on the site, I wish, wish you would uh, submit some comments, some ideas for future guests and, and future shows, because we'll certainly, uh, certainly be responsive to that. Uh, also, please subscribe to the show on the major platforms, YouTube, iTunes, I guess it's now Apple, um, Spotify, all the major podcast platforms, which is what we're on. So thanks for joining the Bill Walton Show. Thanks for joining me and look forward to talking with you again soon. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. 